This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a space of grace in a disgraceful world. And the number one show about medical preparedness, mostly because it's the only show about medical preparedness. <laughs> it's like air jaws. If by air you mean wooden and by jaws you mean dentures. <laughs> and who am I? Why, I'm Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website doomandbloom.net. And here is my wonderful co-host. Her name is... Amy Alton. I'm a nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so smart, Jeopardy has to take an online test to play her. <laughs> I don't think so, <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> On this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, the unconventional medical wisdom. Yes. Plus, at no extra charge, the unhinged opinions of a man who drools on his shoes. Only at night. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Oh, well, I'm not sure about that. Hey, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for times of trouble, you're going to hear it right here. But first, got to listen to this. Absolutely. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't if you're not phased by an occasional zombie apocalypse. But answer me this, who's going to keep your family safe and healthy when the you-know-what really hits the fan and hospitals are out of commission, the doctors are nowhere to be found, and someone you care about is sick or injured? Mm -hmm. Well, it ain't me. I'm just a lonely voice on the radio. It's you, friend. You can bet that when it's least expected, you're elected. So get off your duff and learn some stuff. Why not get some medical supplies while you're at it? I'll bet Amy could tell you where. Absolutely. Store.doomandbloom.net, where we handpack our kits after you order them. They're not sitting there getting dust on them. That's right. In the USA. Mm -hmm. Hey, I want to mention that the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for What Help is Not on the Way, ranks 4.8 out of 5, over 2,600 reviews on Amazon, and is still high on bestseller lists throughout the country. If you haven't checked it out yet, you'll find the black and white version on Amazon and the color version at store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a color spiral-bound version on our website. A very special edition. True that. Okay, well, last time we talked about shark attacks, but this time I'd like to tell you about injuries caused by other marine animals that aren't as scary, but still can be quite dangerous. Matter of fact, even lethal. And one of them is jellyfish. Although sharks get all the publicity, jellyfish cause 150 million injuries a year throughout the world. Imagine if sharks did. Boy, we would probably be in big trouble as a species. Jellyfish are marine species that have a fascinating life cycle. It would remind you of like an alien life form. Many spend part of their life on the seabed, stuck to the seabed like a polyp, I guess, then become free-swimming in their reproductive, often called the medusa, stage. Jellyfish possess these tentacles that have millions of stinging cells that are called nematocysts. They injure millions of swimmers each year by injecting them with a type of venom. Common species to watch out for include the Portuguese man-of-war. We have them down here in Florida. Uh, the box jellyfish, the sea nettle, and, well, there are just a bunch of others. Symptoms may present as very minor or rarely life-threatening. They include things like local throbbing or burning pain and irritation, muscle spasms, itching, swelling, reddish-brown or purple tracts corresponding to where the tentacles actually contacted the skin. They almost form a map, really, of where the uh, injuries occurred. Nausea and vomiting, things like that. They also can cause you to become weak and confused if you wind up having a severe reaction to it. Now, some notice the development of blisters and other reactions that can last up to one to two weeks after a sting. 
in severe envenomations, people get short of breath, they get rapid pulse, heart and lung symptoms may also manifest, depending on the dose of the venom that's been injected into the body. Now, it should be noted that the tentacles of dead jellyfish on the shore, they still can impart venom if you step on them or a touch. Matter of fact, sometimes the tentacles are just under the sand on the beach as you're walking, and you have no idea how you wound up getting injured, but there it is. Now, what you should do if you do get injured and you actually have stingers in you is remove anything that's visible with tweezers or even a credit card, scrape it off, but avoid rubbing the area. Once you remove them, skin irritations can be treated with things like oral antihistamines like difen diphenhydramine, that's Benadryl, or calamine lotion, as well as topical steroids like hydrocortisone, 1% cream, or ointment. Uh, ibuprofen or acetaminophen may be needed for pain. If the injury is near the eye for some reason, that would be weird. Thorough flushing would be advised with eye wash. Burning sensations, if you have them, may be relieved with a rinse using sea, not fresh water, which interestingly enough for many people makes it worse. Some believe that immersion in heated seawater is actually soothing. Different sources actually advocate a bunch of other things, things like vinegar, witch hazel, urine, rubbing alcohol, baking soda paste, and other substances as treatment. These may inactivate the nematocysts, but can vary in their effectiveness and even worsen the condition, depending on the individual victim and the species of jellyfish that's involved. The medic should always determine the right treatment for jellies in their area before a disaster occurs. To prevent jellyfish stings, avoid swimming on the occasions when they swarm. They oftentimes swarm in big, giant groups called blooms. This is often seasonal and might be wise to avoid the shore altogether during these times if possible. Now, if you must enter the water, do so with protective clothing. Wear shoes if you're walking on the beach. Another creature responsible for more injuries than sharks is a relative called the stingray. Stingrays are flat, roundish, seem to fly in the water with fins that sort of look like wings, and they are most often seen in warmer climates. A stingray's tail contains one or two barbed spines, each of which contain venom, which can be very painful and injected into an unwary victim. This usually occurs by accidentally stepping on it, so expect most injuries to be in the feet, the ankles, or the lower legs. Wounds appear as punctures or small lacerations. The venom can be lethal if injected in the chest or the abdomen, though, and that happened in the tragic incident that took the life of Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, uh, some years ago. The list of symptoms that the victim experiences is pretty extensive. It includes bleeding from, of course, the laceration, extreme pain, swelling, dizziness, anxiety, sweating, nausea and vomiting, muscle cramps, skin discoloration. In the worst cases, the victim may have an irregular heartbeat, maybe short of breath, muscle paralysis may occur. They may even have seizures. Now, treating a sting, that's going to involve stopping the bleeding with pressure, flushing the wound and removing any barbs and debris. You may need tweezers, things like that. Soaking it in hot water, not scalding water, though. Heat can inactivate the venom, but not if it's too hot. Scrubbing the wound with soap and fresh water. And one thing that's important is to avoid wound closure unless you absolutely have to because you never know what kind of bugs might be injected into there besides just the venom. Antibiotics like doxycycline, 100 milligrams orally twice a day for seven days, they may be helpful to prevent infection. I've talked to you many times about how to get a veterinary equivalence for that online without a prescription. It should be noted that treatment strategies for stingrays will also work on injuries caused by poison spine catfish, scorpion fish, and other toxic sea creatures. Now, I want to talk to you about another critter that can cause death that's in the marine waters. I'm not talking about sharks, I'm not talking about jellyfish, stingrays, 
talking about stuff that's much, much smaller. I'm talking about flesh-eating bacteria. Indeed, several deaths linked to rare, this rare flesh-eating bacteria have been reported in various parts of the U.S. this year. There are two people in Connecticut that were infected with a bacterium known as Vibrio vulnificus, and that occurred after swimming. Another person was infected after eating raw oysters and getting the infection. Bacteria is also detected in the body of a person who died in Long Island. A little less clear what happened there. In Florida, it's actually worse. State health officials in Florida report 20 to 30 cases a year, 26 this year, of something called necrotizing fasciitis, which is the lethal infection that's caused by the bacteria. Nine of those people have died. If you're not familiar with the infection, you should be, actually, because this is something that you have to know how it spreads and how to be safe in the areas where the bacteria exists. The Connecticut cases were in two adults between 60 and 80 years old who died after being infected by Vibrio vulnificus in July. They were apparently exposed to salt or brackish water, a mixture of fresh and salt water is called brackish water, in Long Island Sound. Both had cuts or wounds where the bug could have entered their body. Now, a third non-fatal case appeared to have occurred when the person ate raw oysters that were not harvested locally. Necrotizing fasciitis from Vibrio falnificus doesn't just affect old people, although they're most likely to die from an infection. Anyone with an open wound can get it from contaminated water. So what exactly is Vibrio? Vibrio is a family of bacteria, which includes a pathogen that causes cholera. But Vibrio vulnificus, that's a different critter altogether. It normally occurs in warm brackish water, usually in areas like the Gulf of Mexico. But it can be found in higher concentrations up north from May to October when the weather is warm. Common symptoms if ingested from raw shellfish include cholera-like symptoms, though, like watery diarrhea, stomach cramps, vomiting, fever, and chills, things like that. Infected wounds, however, they look like an infected wound. They're red, swollen, and painful, and symptoms usually occur very fast, usually within 12 to 24 hours, and they can last one to seven days in mild cases and much longer and cause major problems in severe cases. So why is infection with Vibrio vulnificus called a flesh-eating disease? That's because if they enter through an open wound, it causes the flesh around it to die and then travels through the bloodstream to other parts of the body. And such a condition can require intensive care or even limb amputations. About one in five people with the infection die, usually within a short time of becoming ill. Now, there was a young girl named Amy Copeland who got it when she fell from a zip line in Georgia about a decade ago. She sustained the laceration on her thigh that required 22 sutures, well, actually staples, sorry, to be closed. Now, unfortunately, closing the wound sequestered this vibrio organism in her soft tissues, and that led to the flesh-eating bacteria traveling to different parts of her body, and she ended up with both hands amputated and parts of both legs. I mean, this is serious stuff, folks. So what's the treatment? People with less severe stomach infections from ingesting, let's say, raw shellfish, usually recover on their own. If you experience diarrhea, you should drink plenty of fluids. That's very important. But for severe cases, a doctor will usually provide antibiotics. Infections in wounds from Vibrio vulnificus, well, those usually need to be treated in an intensive care setting. Off the grid, there's probably not much you can do if that actually occurs. Can you prevent the Vibrio infection? Well, if you have an open wound, including scrapes, cuts, recent tattoos, piercings, things like that. Avoid swimming, walking, or wading in warm marine waters on the East Coast or the Gulf of Mexico. If you do go in the water, keep any wound covered with a waterproof bandage and wear proper foot protection to prevent cuts or scrapes from rocks or shells. Health officials suggest avoiding direct contact with something called sargassum. That's the floating algae that's washed ashore 
in places such as the Florida Keys because it contains the pathogen that's called sargassum, S-A-R-G-A-S-S-U-M, like the seaweed. You should not consume raw oysters or other raw shellfish that are taken from warm coastal waters during the summer months. Instead, cook them, cook oysters, clams, mussels, things like that, thoroughly. You want to boil shucked oysters for at least three minutes or fry them in oil for at least 10 minutes at 375 degrees. That's according to the Florida Health Department. You should wear gloves, by the way, when handling raw shellfish and thoroughly wash your hands with soap and water when you're done. Luckily, there's no evidence of Vibrio's necrotizing fasciitis is transmissible from person to person. It's not contagious. Strangely enough, people who take stomach acid-reducing drugs like Prilosec, Pepsin, and others may be at increased risk because stomach acid helps kill harmful germs. There's apparently a connection, by the way, between hurricanes and Vibrio infections. Health officials have observed spikes of cases during and after floodings from hurricanes in the Gulf region. There's one headed for the Gulf Coast of Florida right now as I'm recording this. Blood waters are indeed badly contaminated. In 2022, there were 38 cases at 11 deaths attributed to Vibrio vulnificus and the storm despite public health messages on the importance of, of avoiding contact with floodwaters, particularly for those people with open wounds. Spikes in cases also occurred during Hurricane Katrina in 2005 and Hurricane Irma in 2017. That's according to the CDC. So you shouldn't be afraid to get in the water, but be aware that there are things in there that can cause problems. Well, since hurricanes have been in the news, I think we should talk a little bit more about them. They've been on the West Coast with Hillary, that tropical cyclone Hillary, and then now we have Hurricane Idalia, which seems to be headed for Florida. So I think it's time for us to really go in more detail about that. Hurricanes can certainly be dangerous, but they don't have to be life-threatening for people who prepare Unlike uh, tornadoes, which pop up suddenly, hurricanes are first identified when they're hundreds, if not thousands of miles away. We can watch their development and have a good idea of how bad the situation might be and how much time we have to get ready. Even before it's clear that your area is in danger of being hit by the storm, you should have considered factors like food, water, power, and shelter. By having a plan of action beforehand, you'll decrease the risk of having your family injured or displaced by, by the storm. Here are a few tips to help people that are preparing for the worst while hoping for the best. This section of it I call Hit the Road Jack because I want you to make a good G-O-O-D decision. That's G-O-O-D stands for get out of Dodge. If you're a rugged individualist, maybe you want to ride out the storm, but some coastal residents would really best be served by hitting the road. When the authorities say it's time to evacuate, you really should be ready to go. So make sure you have that go bag ready. Don't forget to turn off the power, gas, and water before you leave. If you go, you need to have, of course, a set of supplies available, that go bag I was talking about, non-perishable food, bottled water, extra clothing, flashlight and batteries, a NOAA weather radio, a medicines first aid kit, a good first aid kit. I know where you can find some over at store.doomandbloom.net. These are a few of the items that I think will help ensure your survival. These people in FEMA and things like that, they recommend a 72-hour supply. But this figure, uh, to me, is very arbitrary. I think a week's worth. Even two weeks worth might be even better because I've seen storms that have cut the power for at least that length of time. If you do go, you should head inland because hurricanes gain their strength through warm ocean waters. They lose strength quickly once they hit the interior of the land. Some storms do stall on the coast. Now, if you're escaping the storm, the further inland you go, the safer that you're going to be. If there isn't time, most coastal municipalities have designated a sturdy shelter as a hurricane building 
make sure that you ask what facilities they have. They may not have facilities, for example, to care for your pets. You may need to make provisions for that. You need to have a cell phone charger. The communication is key. Many cell phone chargers can be plugged into the car. And solar chargers are also available. So these are things that you should probably consider. You definitely want to be able to communicate. And you need to have cash in hand. You need to have cash in hand. In small bills, as a matter of fact, power for credit card verification could be down after a hurricane. If you don't keep some cash on hand in small bills, you're going to have a power shortage. And that is purchasing power. That's right. Let's say you haven't received an evacuation order. You're going to ride out the storm in place. Here are some considerations you're going to want to take into account. Let's talk about food. You want to keep it cold. You have the refrigerator and the freezer down to their coldest settings so that the food will be not spoiling and, or at least take longer to spoil if the power goes out. You want to collect ice uh, in plastic bags and place them throughout your fridge to prolong freshness. If there are open spots, fill Tupperware containers or plastic soda bottles with water, freeze them, and place them in spaces. The fuller the fridge is, the longer the items in it will stay cold. You want to wrap in foil. Food items should be wrapped in aluminum foil, eliminating air pockets, and cram the foil packs together as closely as you possibly can. You want to also cook meats before the hurricane gets close and freeze them. As cooking requires fuel, you want to have some maybe propane tanks or charcoal briquettes at least in your supplies for when the power goes out. Now you want to eat those perishables first. That's what you need to do. The canned foods can come later. For Pete's sake, don't forget to buy a hand-operated can opener in case of a power failure. Now, by the way, you may go and rummage through the refrigerator often during your day, but do not leave the refrigerator door open in a hurricane or after a hurricane when you're deciding what food to take out. Visualize where a particular item is and then open the door. You do not want to have that food spoil because the refrigerator got warm. Let's talk about water a little bit. There's water, water everywhere with floodwaters due to storm surge, but they're usually contaminated. You want to have a stockpile of maybe five-gallon bottles of water or a plentiful supply of smaller bottles. You want to fill the tub with water. You might think that's overkill, but every member of your family needs at least a gallon of water per day. It goes fast. You want to drink the melted ice in the refrigerator as refrigerator ice in containers melts. Remember, you made two liter bottles of water. You froze them. So you can pack them in the refrigerator and keep things cold. As they melt, don't waste them. Use them as an additional source of drinking water. Hot water heaters, they hold, well, water. Hot water heaters have gallons and gallons of drinkable water. Don't hesitate to raid them if you have to. Now, first, you want to turn off the electricity or gas, of course. And you attach a hose to the drain valve, release the vacuum in the tank by opening a hot water faucet nearby. Now, there might be some sediment at the bottom. That should be drained out first before you consider drinking the water there. If there's questionable water, you want to disinfect it. Don't expect debris-laden floodwaters to be clean enough to drink. You need some household bleach available to make water safe, maybe. 12 to 16 drops per gallon should do the job. If you have tincture of iodine, uh, iodine uh, well, 16 drops of that would also work per gallon. You want to allow 30 minutes before drinking, of course, to let the chemicals work their magic. That's important. You also might want to have a water filter, some, something like the Life Straw or the Sawyer Mini. These are awesome, or larger ones like the Berkey. These can be useful to deal with cloudy, questionable water. Now, let's talk about your home. You want to put up the shutters if you got them at least 24 hours before landfall. It's no fun to have to stand on a ladder in gale force winds and pouring rain to install them. Actually, I've been there and I've done that. It ain't fun. You want to move your furniture and your plants inside, move the patio furniture, potted plants indoors. If you can't for some reason, at least you want to chain them together against an outer wall downwind from the direction of a storm. You want to prune your trees near your home so that the wind can easily flow through the crown so they don't fall down. Otherwise, you're going to wind up with trees that are down by the storm. 
well, in South Florida, we have coconuts, other debris or things that are on trees. They can act as missiles and high winds. You want to get rid of those if you possibly can as well. In the house, you want to pick a safe room. You want to choose the room in the interior of the home, preferably one without windows. It might be tempting to take a selfie out in the storm, but you know what? It might be your last one. A lot of people talk about uh, keeping candles, using candles during hurricanes. If you do, they can be knocked over by winds. They can cause fires. You got to make sure that if you use them, stick them in a pan with some shiny sides so that they will give you some light, but also will be deep enough to cover the flame for protected from the winds. You want to have tarps at the ready. Large tarps can be used to cover windows and after the storm to cover any areas of the roof that might have been damaged. You don't expect any roofers, honestly, to be waiting for your call after the storm. Gosh, it took more than a year for all the tar tarps to disappear down here in South Florida after Hurricane Wilma in 2005. How about sandbags? Well, sandbags, a lot of people don't think that's important, but if there's flooding, well, honestly, sandbags can actually help protect your home from flooding that's less than, let's say, two feet high. You want to fill sandbags a half half full with sand or soil if available and fold the top of the sandbag down and the rest of the bag on the folded top and you tamp each sandbag in place so there's not any space between them and make sure you try to cover all the possible entryways for water into your home there are other considerations you want to talk about the kids that's important you want to have board games toys and books to keep the kids minds off scary winds if you're evacuating let kids bring their favorite stuffed animals blanket or pillow to make sure that they stay calm you have your other kids too. Don't forget to take into account the needs of your pets, food, water, their favorite toy available, whether you leave or stay at home. And then you have your other other kid, your car. Make sure your car is in good working order, filled with gas. You want to have some spare gas cans also in case of a shortage at the pumps. Of course, they can be used to run generators, although never inside or near windows, doors, or vents. If you have documents that you want to make sure are safe, you want to put them in waterproof containers or scan them and send them in an email to yourself, you can do that. You want to keep your radio on, a NOAA weather radio, either a battery-powered or hand-cranked, will be an important source of information on the progress of the storm, so you want to have that definitely as part of your supplies. And stay in touch. Whether you stay or go, let the rest of the family know your plans, how to reach you, where, you, where are you going if you're going to evacuate especially. Know that voice calls may be difficult during or after a storm. A lot of cell companies count on no more than 20% call capacity. After that, they sort of get uh, inundated. Texts, however, texts seem to go through more easily than voice calls, even in high-volume settings. Got enough tips for you? I hope so. You know what? Being prepared for a hurricane can make sure that the storm is going to be just a bump in the road, not the end of the road for you and your family. You want to have a plan of action. You want to get some supplies and you'll keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. And now a word from our sponsor. Portions of the show are sponsored by Greg's Gut Felt. Made from the intestines of unicorns, Greg's Gut Felt is the softest, smoothest felt available on the market today. Use it to line your pool or poker table. Cover a blister with it. Or just rub it on your skin. Mmm, smooth. Found wherever Greg's gut is felt. For more than a decade, I've designed medical kits for survival scenarios. Now, in these kits, I've always used brand name items and felt the genuine articles were important in terms of reliability, especially for potential lifesavers like tourniquets, hemostatic dressings, and compression bandages. Aside from confirmation from those people working in the field, however, I had little hard data to support my opinion. Now, a study in the summer 2023 
issue of the Journal of Special Ops Medicine compares the well-known combat application tourniquet, or CAT, to a much cheaper look-alike that occupies space in many thousands of medical kits, the Military Tactical Emergency Tourniquet, or MTET. These are commonly found on third-party sites such as eBay, Amazon, and online medical kit stores with low pricing. The current design of the CAT tourniquet involves a hook-and-loop fastening strap tightened with a thick plastic rod known as a windlass. The MTET is very similar in appearance and mechanics to the CAT, but available at approximately a third to half the cost. It's been so successful in sales that it's the Amazon's choice in the category. Made overseas, the MTET and a number of other tourniquets are marketed in English for the American and Canadian consumer. Given the visual similarity, discount price, and quality claims, the MTET is a tempting option for anyone on a budget. And who isn't these days? Before I talk about the study, let me say I have no financial interest in any company that manufactures tourniquets. Okay, so the researchers of the Special Ops Journal study took a group of 50 combat medics, 68Ws, who served as instructors at Joint Base San Antonio, Fort Sam Houston, Texas. They were told to self-apply either an MTET or CAT tourniquet on the mid-thigh area. They used one tourniquet on one leg, then the other tourniquet on the other leg, and were timed. Placement time target was about 60 seconds, with a successful application confirmed by a sonogram showing cessation of arterial flow in the dorsalis pedis artery located on the top of the foot. All 50 medics were successful in applying the cat tourniquet under 60 seconds. With the MTET, only 40 combat medics, or 80%, succeeded, with the MTET requiring a longer median time overall to complete the task. In addition to failing the 60-second test, mechanical failures, 14%, were encountered in the form of a bent windlass rod, rip stitching, and a deformed buckle. A mechanical failure, you might imagine, can mean the difference between life and death. This study provides evidence that not all tourniquets are created equal, even when applied by experienced professionals. It's true the combat medics may be more familiar with the cat tourniquet and thus maybe apply it faster, but a popular look-alike does not appear to be equally effective in stopping blood flow in a significant number of cases. This leads me to suspect that production or material flaws may be to blame for the difference. The CAT, as well as the soft T-wide and the tactical mechanical tourniquet, have all received the blessing of the military's Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care, a recommendation not given lightly. Don't assume that lower-cost imitations, though popular, are equivalent to those that have been thoroughly tested in both the lab and the battlefield. This study is rare proof that you get what you pay for. The sunny southwest U.S., including Southern California, was hit recently by tropical cyclone Hillary 1L, a weather event that gave some desert areas a year's worth of rain in 24 hours. Have a dry climate? Get wildfires. Wish for rain? Well, get flash floods and mudslides. I should probably write more about mudslides. We live part-time in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, with a mountain home overlooking town and the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. We were on the side of a cliff, really, essentially. It's got quite a slope, I'll tell you. How much? Well, let's just say you're going to need a pretty long ladder just to access the backyard from our deck. So let's talk about mudslides. A mudslide is sometimes called the debris flow, and that's a landslide with a high water content. Mudslides can act like a slow-moving river that has a consistency of wet cement. Mud, rocks, trees, and other large objects are carried along and cause homes to collapse or slide off their foundations and a huge amount of traumatic injury to residents. In the U.S., there are about 25 to 50 deaths on average due to this natural disaster. Another type of mudslide is called a mud flow. 
which is characterized by a very rapid flow of water and debris. A mud flow is more liquefied due, well, at least partially, to a lot of rain added to loose soil in a short period of time. Mudslides occur for a variety of reasons. Periods of rainfall or snowmelt saturate the ground and cause instability in sloping areas. Areas prone to earthquakes, hurricanes, wildfires, and other natural disasters are especially susceptible. Indeed, in the case of the Los Angeles area, a magnitude 5.5 earthquake occurred at the same time as Hillary passed through, worsening the situation. Areas in the West that have hard, compact soil as a result of wildfires have difficult times absorbing large amounts of rain, especially if it falls in a short period of time. As such, water that couldn't get through this hard earth quickly forms flash floods and cascades down slopes, picking up soil and debris, and eventually could become a mudslide. Humans contribute to the risk of mudslides by planning poorly. Roads that are cut into hills, mountains, scenic mountain homes, these make mudslides more likely. River retreats at the base of a hill or a mountain in the holler, as we say in Tennessee, those are also vulnerable. Once you've made the decision to build that home on a hillside, there's a limited number of preventive measures that can be undertaken. It's a different story if you're just now planning out that dream home. There are things you can do to harden your home. Beware of steep slopes, natural or man-made runoff conduits, or eroded areas. Have the county geological survey specialist assess your property for possible mudslide risk. You might consider flexible pipe fittings, these are installed by pros, that are less prone to gas or water leaks. Consider building a retaining wall in likely mudslide channels. Avoid areas that have experienced mudslides in the past. Plan out an evacuation route and have a battery-powered NOAA weather radio available at all times. And of course, you should have a medical kit with items to deal with both traumatic injury and, for later, water sterilization. Now, sometimes pressure from unstable earth may give you a hint that trouble is on the way and give you time to evacuate. That's very important. Having just maybe a few extra minutes can make a big difference. Mudslide-prone areas will begin to show signs of strain when cracks develop in walls, flooring, paving, driveways, or foundations. Outside structures begin to separate from buildings. If you have stairs on the side of your building, that might separate or decking, things like that. Doors and windows become difficult to open or close. Utility lines start breaking. Fences, trees, and utility poles start tilting. Water starts accumulating in weird places. Roads and embankments along slopes start breaking off at the edges. And terrain may start to bulge or slant at the base of a slope. So these are some signs that you may be in big trouble in the very near future. During a mudslide, what you need to do is, of course, probably before you should always have the NOAA radio on and listen to warnings as they're reported. Of course, if you can, you should warn your neighbors that something's going to happen soon. If a mudslide's imminent, you want to get out of Dodge. Make a good decision. It's G-O-O-D. Get out of Dodge, if at all possible, with the understanding that roads may be washed out. Weather alerts should be heated. Don't take a wait-and-see attitude if they tell you to evacuate. And stay away from known mudslide areas, because new mudslides may still occur in those places. In some mudslides, such as in Southern California, things can happen very quickly, and you don't have a lot of time to evacuate. If you have to stay home, go to the second story if you have one. Watch for and avoid down power lines. And as a slide passes through, get under a table, curl into a ball, protecting your head. If you're trapped in the mud, survival rates go up if you can form an air pocket around you. As you might in avalanches, I've talked about that before, put your arms in front of your face to gain some breathing room. It's a good idea to carry a cell phone with you at all times in case you're trapped in the house or in the mud. 
Mudslides like wildfires leave scars on the land, but they're part and parcel of living with Mother Nature. You need to plan before you build, know the danger signs, and hit the road as early as possible in the face of an imminent threat. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alden, I'm Joe Alden, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.